Yo, what's good everyone? It's Anushan and you're listening to Brown Men Won't Jump. What is up, guys, and welcome to another episode of Brown Men Won't Jump. I'm your host, AC, and I'm coming at you after some memorable, if somewhat one-sided, Game 7s. And with me returning, we have our Celtics fan extraordinaire, my guy, Vivek. Hey, everyone. Woo! My man is sweet off of a victory. It's got to feel good. I remember when we last spoke on this pod, we were concerned about how maybe the Celtics would match up against the top end town of a team like Milwaukee. Granted, there was no Middleton, but they gave him everything they could give. But the Celtics proved that what we saw that last series was not a fluke. How are you feeling right now, man? Oh, man. I think, you know, we talked after game five, and I told you I was a believer. Yeah. I mean, the team rewarded my faith. I can't tell you. I've been a sports fan my entire life. I can't remember a time where a team has made me a believer mid-season and actually come through on that process. It's a feeling as an X6 fan, I can never say I've I've truly experienced. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there was that one Jeremy Lin year where we did believe before you uh, abandoned the Knicks bandwagon. For those of you who have not yet been introduced to Vivek before, he is a former Knicks fan who jumped ship when he, to be fair, moved right near the Boston Garden after years and years of Knicks failures. And to his credit, he has stuck with this team ever since. And, and he has gone through a decent bit of heartbreak. And I got to say, you brought up game five. To me at that point, it felt like you guys maybe threw away an opportunity at a title. I really felt like that. I believe in the Celtics team. I believe in their defense. I believe in their advanced stats. And they had this lead, and it's like one of those like four to six point leads with a few minutes left, which normally might not seem safe, but with the defense being played in this series, it felt insurmountable. And then just a variety of improbable things happened, which ultimately culminated in the Bucks stealing that game and you guys having to go on the road to Milwaukee to get that game six, and which, by the way, Jason Tatum was spectacular, and that led us to this game seven. So... Take me through your mindset. Why were you confident in this team when even when they were down at that point? You know, it's it's a it's a hard feeling to explain. This is just a team that's got the grit, that's got the self-belief in every bit of their pores that makes you know that even it takes a certain type of team to come back from a gut-wrenching loss. And when you've been watching basketball long enough, you can recognize that type of team. You know, the Spurs type team that really has the leadership and the experience to collect itself and come through. And this Celtics team, I don't know what happened in January, but ever since then, they've just carried this self-belief that that is just every time you, you see them, every interview that they give, every communication that you see between them on the court, that self-belief radiates, even when they're losing, even when they're whining to the refs. You can see it there and you can recognize it. And this whole series, this whole season, I've just been a believer in that team. Part of me prior to this was worried that this generation of the Celtics, and honestly, my brain thought this after that game five loss, that this generation of the Celtics was doomed to be the perfect foil. I don't know if you watch tennis, 
But Nadal is sort of the perfect foil in tennis. He's the guy that pushes every team to the extreme, every every player to the extreme. He's the guy that makes Djokovic, the guy that makes Federer be all-time greats in their matches. He's the one that pushes everyone to their extreme and oftentimes loses, right? That's that's just how his career goes. Fortunately, he also does that I mean, and also wins Grand Slam titles. Yeah, himself, he's right? tied with them for the all-time He's, he's actually ahead right now for the well, He's effectively ahead, yes, so yeah. you're right. But before, for a while, you know, five, four Grand Slams ago, that's what everyone in tennis thought, right? He's the guy that's going to push Djokovic to five sets, the, the longest game in tennis history, but he's going to lose. He does the same thing with better, right? That's that's sort of how his career was heading. And I, I was worried that the Celtics this generation were heading in that same direction. They push the heat to, you know, a great series. They make Bam and Jimmy look amazing. They fight tooth and nail and then they lose, right? They make LeBron look amazing in that 2018 game seven where he's just stakes his claim as one of the all-time greats, even more than he always was before, right? They're the team that makes Milwaukee look great. They're the team that, for whatever reason, they're they're scrappy, they're feisty, they always fight, but then they lose at the end, right? But something about this series and this season made it feel like they were they were different. And I just, even though my my brain was telling me Game Five was a gut check loss, they're likely to lose. All the odds are against them. Blah 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 blah. I just, in my heart, I felt like they could win, and that's what I texted you, right? You, I have you did. The evidence to show that I believe in them after game five and they came through it's just an amazing feeling as a sports fan to experience that set of emotions what's interesting to me is that after game five going on the road they need a spectacular performance from a superstar and jason tatum apart from you know one game or so earlier in the series has been really remarkable maybe not quite to the level of Giannis, but he's doing what has to be done that game six performance and that showdown between the two of them, it reminded me of some Celtics battles in the past, right? Where one superstar on the Celtics was going head-to-head against another guy. So, you know, Shades of Dominique versus Larry Bird. Shades of 2008, I know you remember this one, Vivek. Paul Pierce going head-to-head against LeBron in Game 7. Ultimately came out with a victory there. And here it was like he had the better team around him, especially without Middleton. And even if Giannis put up some crazy ungodly numbers... He did what he had to do, going shot for shot with that guy. Gets out of that game, comes to a game seven, and what does Bud do? He basically says, this man is not going to beat us. He threw the kitchen sink at him. They already can see a lot of threes as a team, the Bucks, But here, the trap was early, it was quick. And what I love about Jason Tatum, to me, what separates him this season from all of the previous years he's had before, he made the right read in those moments. He did not force things. He trusted the pass. And he had turnovers, by the way, in Game 7. But the maturity to to do what was needed in Game 6, where he had to literally be the reason that they were staying in this game with his scoring, to now being the setup man in a game in which we ended up having Grant Williams hit a career-high amount of threes and lead the Celtics in scoring for the first time in his career in a Game 7. I mean... That doesn't happen if Jason Tatum doesn't buy into his team, the trust, and also just understanding how to exploit the defense and the way they were playing him. Yeah, I mean, that Paul Pierce-LeBron example, I think, is is perfect, right? No one thinks Paul Pierce is a better player than LeBron James, right? But for that single game, he essentially tied him, right? For He he he, he equaled LeBron for, the, for that single game. And Tatum 
is by no means as good a player as Giannis. If you look at the course of the series, their production, it's not even close, right? But for a few games here or there, he matched Giannis, and that was, that's enough to take a better team over the top, right? And that's what we needed from him. And that's what we've been waiting for Tatum to do for years and years, even from the last time he played LeBron and almost played toe-to-toe with him in that game seven, but he wasn't quite good enough then. Now he is quite good enough for single games to be the best player on the floor and go toe-to-toe with the best player in the league. I mean, that's what they needed. 100%. And game seven to me was really fascinating in that, you know, it's in Boston Garden, right? Or TD Garden, as they call it now. One of, in my opinion, and I don't mean to say this is to compliment you and your fan base, your newfound fan base, but I do think it's one of the best home crowds. They understand how to sort of rally around a team. They know how to put pressure on the referees. They know how to boo at the right time and the right people. And this was a game where I actually thought they kind of swung everything because the Celtics started out pretty poorly. And and for a moment, it felt like the Bucs were on the verge of running away from this. Giannis had a, a decent start. He looked like he was on, on, on pace for like a 40.40 rebound game. And and it looked, it looked dire. And Jason Tatum goes to the bench. The Celtics crowd just rallies around the guys that are in there. And they go on this run and they end that half in a decent, like, small, I think it was about a five-point margin. And from there, that third quarter was unbelievable. And, you know, there, there's just so much to talk about. There. But let's start with the crowd. And the fact that, by the way, like we should mention, the Milwaukee Bucks made a tactical choice. They had the number two seed more or less locked up. They did not want to play Brooklyn. They decided that they were going to effectively tank out of the second seed. Well, guess what that meant? In the critical game where everything's on the line, they had to come to Boston and play in TD Garden. And I think it had a real impact. I mean, I, I was texting you this throughout the series. You know, I, I just moved away from Boston after living there for more than seven years and going to TD Garden games regularly. And that atmosphere, even when I'm watching on TV, makes me jealous, right? It's just in this playoffs, I'm not saying ever, but in this playoffs, it's been by far the best atmosphere of any playoff game, right? I agree. It's like what Madison Square Garden used to be in its heyday, right? That atmosphere, that electricity, that noise, that crowd involvement. It's like what Oracle used to be before they they changed stadiums, right? I would argue right now it's the best home court advantage in the league. And it's because the fans love this team too. It's not just the general stadium, but there's this investment. We've seen this team grow up. You know, when I moved to Boston, Tatum wasn't even drafted yet. Marcus Smart had just gotten drafted, right? And now you see him seven years later grow into the player that he is. And there's just a love for the team and a belief in the team that shows from the crowd. It's a rare team that actually is a quote-unquote built, not bought team. I, I hate that phrase usually because everyone has some sort of free agent that comes in. But even the guys they acquired are sort of former Celtics, whether it's Al Horford, whether it's Daniel Tice, right? And then... It's these guys that they got kind of later in the draft. Like, you look at someone like Grant Williams. Yeah. That guy's an absolute steal. I mean, not just because of what he did in Game 7, where he, you know, shot lights out, but he's been a 40% three-point shooter all season long. And in the playoffs, he had, you know, elite man-to-man post-defense. And they got him pretty late. And they developed this guy. He wasn't an obvious player, right? Rob Williams. They call him Time Lord, literally because he couldn't show up on time to things, right? And, and you know, he wasn't played this series, but it shows their versatility, their depth. All these guys are homegrown. And when you have a crowd that already appreciates basketball, and it's not a mercenary squad. It's a squad they got to see grow up, fail. You know, they got to see Brad Stevens come in as his big sort of hire and then ultimately lose his 
position and end up being a GM and all the stuff that happened with Danny Ainge and all the criticism he took. For this team to coalesce like this, it's got to be an amazing feeling. And you can see it just from the way the crowd and even just Boston media in general is just treating this team. Uh, and now, by the way, you're officially part of Boston media. Do you realize that, Vivek? Uh, I mean, it's okay. I'll be biased Boston media. I'll take it. But, you know, an unbiased take is, honestly, we lucked into this, right? We didn't try to build a homegrown team. We actually tried to to recruit superstars. We threw away IT, who we loved, right? I was at game five when IT scored 55 points and beat the Wizards. We cheered for him. His sister had died the day before. And then we threw him, threw him, threw him to the wolves and, like, got Kyrie, right? So let's not pretend that the Boston organization wanted a homegrown team. They kind of lucked into this situation, right? Agreed. But, you know, now that we've lucked into it and – it's just a different relationship when you've seen people for this many years and a different enjoyment you get out of seeing people growing like that and achieving the levels that you only dreamt of before. And not, again, I don't even want to say we deserve this as an organization. I still feel bad about the IT thing, right? IT sacrificed so much for the team. And, you know, we were cursed. It felt like we were cursed for years and years because of that. And honestly, deservedly so. You know, he sacrificed for us and and we, we we traded away for Kyrie, who then spurned us and burned us, which you know we deserved. If one of your one of your guy friends did that, like broke up with the, with a girl, picked another girl, and then that girl dumped him, you wouldn't feel bad for him, right? You'd be like, well, no, good point. You're kind of an idiot, right? So like, yeah. I, I I understand the shot in front that every other fan base felt for us for the last few years. They hated on Celtics fans, they hated on organization, but now you know we've paid our dues. We've had some crushing heartbreaking losses we've been spurned by Kyrie we've been spurned by Katie in the past right and now we have some stars who who like the, who love the city and the city loves them I am one of those fans who kind of rooted against the Celtics in part because they're the second most successful franchise of all time right I mean who the hell roots for the Lakers who the hell roots for the Celtics if you're not one of their fans already but I've come to really appreciate this squad and I think one of the things I've really enjoyed about watching them Vivek I actually think this might be the best defensive team that I've seen and I, I really mean this since the 2000s or four through six or so when they still had Ben Wallace Detroit Pistons I'm even putting them above the 2008 Celtics because I, I want you to think about that team right which was a quote-unquote legendary defense who was really elite or even really above average defensively on that squad obviously KG is all-time like maybe Maybe the best pick-and-roll defender as a big man the NBA has ever seen. So right there, you have this elite guy. But beyond that, I mean, you had James Posey, you know, positive defender. Perkins, I guess, for the time, for that kind of game, I guess, he, you know, he served his role. Leon Poe, I mean, it, 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 gets, it gets slim, right? I mean, there, there's a lot of guys there. Obviously, they had a young Rondo, who was a very good defensive player. But when I look at this Celtics team, I see a legitimate argument that they have seven defenders on their team they're anywhere from good to, like, elite to the point that Jalen Brown, who I think we would all consider one of the better two-way wings in the NBA, maybe, just if you take their starting five, the worst defensive player of the starting five, I mean, what kind of a team can say that? And it makes them so unique in that they have nowhere to attack. And it's interesting, Vivek, that you brought up Isaiah Thomas and Kyrie Irving, right? Even you could throw in Kemba Walker in this. What those guys brought to the table was an element of individual creation that maybe this team doesn't quite have from the guard spots. But what they have gained as a result of losing those players is they don't have any weak spots you can attack. And you've seen this year after year 
Playoff basketball comes to hunting mismatches. Even someone as great as Chris Paul, and we'll talk about that series, Luka handed it to him over and over again, right? You look at the Warriors out there, I see I see weak spots, right? You see what the Celtics did to Grayson Allen, who was kind of brought in to, I guess, fill in P.J. Tucker's boots, which we should talk about for sure. Ultimately, Tatum picked on him over and over again. You guys don't have a player like that, and it's so cool to see that. It's true. I mean... This is a roster construction every team in the league wishes they could have, right? And it's just, it's hard. You lucked into two high draft picks to get Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, right? And we know high draft picks don't only, always hit, right? Look at the Sixers, right? Even if you even if you have high draft picks and you do all the the, the appropriate scouting, you get lucky sometimes. And, and you know, yeah. the, the Celtics got lucky with those two. They're everything that we dreamed that they would be, right? You mentioned the Grant Williams signing, right? I mean... He turned into a 41% three-point shooter. Like, the defense, I buy. Him being a 34% three-point shooter, I buy. But him being a 40% three-point shooter, I don't think anyone anyone predicted that. Yeah, it's come to the point, Vivek, where when I watch Grant Williams, I wonder, you know, as much as we talk about Rob Williams, having a stretch five who can at least hold up defensively and is somewhat switchable, not like really switchable, like sort of Anthony Davis type switchable, but he could hold his own. It actually kind of unlocks something in their offense that I always feel is really their their weak spot is can they score enough? And just having, I know that Rob Williams provides like a vertical spacing component, but if Grant Williams is hitting 41% from three, you don't, that's all the spacing you possibly could need. So I'm wondering now, going forward, if Grant Williams will, even if Rob Williams is back and healthy, which we don't know will happen, will Grant Williams kind of be the five for this team as they find their new identity as a little bit more balanced, maybe from an offense and defense perspective? I mean, it's hard, right? You can't expect Horford to have a series like this every single series, right? This is this is an out-of-body series experience for him. And to expect him to do it for two more playoff series like that is just, it's like an unreasonable expectation. I love Horford. He's my second favorite player on the team after Jalen, right? But it's just, you can't expect that out of him. And so we're going to need Rob Williams. And, you know, what made the Celtics dangerous in the regular season is they overwhelmed teams with their physicality and their athleticism and their defense. I don't think we overwhelmed the Milwaukee Bucks, right? We just kind of outlasted them because they just didn't have enough guys and they couldn't score enough, right? We didn't really overwhelm them with our defense like we did with the Nets. So if we want to do that to the Heat, for example, which we have a chance of doing, I think we're going to need Rob Williams. Um, And certainly, you know, Lucas Mavs or Golden State Warriors, you know, in in the finals, we're we're going to need that level of, extraordinary athleticism that he brings that Grant Williams and Horford these days do not. Do you think that there's a potential weakness from a ball handling perspective? I see a Celtics offense that takes a little bit too long to get set up. And I think Miami is actually a lot better defensive team than Milwaukee. Milwaukee this year, and part of that's they didn't have Lopez the whole season. It kind of skewed the numbers a little bit. But to be honest, they weren't that good from a statistical standpoint. And they had places to attack. Miami, depending on who they play, have some potential weak spots, but they have some dogs out there. They they can put out five guys who, just like the Celtics, like just you can't do anything against. Who would you give the ball to in those situations and be like, hey, I need you to bring the ball to the court. Do you trust Marcus Smart? I mean, I don't know if you could really trust Pritchard or Derek White in those instances. Yeah, I mean, I think least- Marcus Smart and Derek White can bring up the ball. You know, they, they have good enough handles to do so. It's one thing when Drew Holiday is the one pressuring your ball versus anyone that the Heat can provide. Right. Drew Holiday is, an, is another level of, of ball pressure, right? Probably the best on ball defender in the entire league. 
right? And just from the guard perspective, I agree. Yeah, certainly from a guard perspective, right? So cracking a little bit under ball pressure from him is like saying you feared Giannis's rim pressure, right? Of course you're going to fear Giannis's rim pressure. That's fair. Um, And I don't think any of the teams left have an on-ball guard who can do that. Lowry at his peak, but he's not at his peak right now. Yeah, actually, I don't even know if Lowry is going to have a role next round because we don't know what his injury looks like. And frankly, he was dragging a leg and they they played better without him. Yeah, I mean, what worries me more is their offense overall, right? I think their defense is going to pick it up a notch because Giannis was singularly capable of sort of overwhelming them sometimes, right? I don't think there's any other player in the league who can do that, right? Because, you know, all the other teams that are left are guard and wing based right for their offense yeah and and only the bucks had this overwhelming physical interior force who could score efficiently close to efficiently doing that and even him we made a little inefficient in this series right and so there our team is not built to stop an interior dominating force right the team is built to stop guards and wings and that's that's who are facing us for the rest of rest of this conference and the rest of the the playoffs the bigger challenge is the offense, right? We won this series because we hit threes, right? That's the Bucks' strategy to, to, to force you to shoot threes, and we happen to hit them. Um, and, and in particular, Tatum and Horford hit their threes in pivotal points of the series. And to expect them to do that all the time makes me nervous because, you know, I, I want talk to talk about this a little bit later when we talk about the Suns-Mavs. Three-point shooting increases the variance in a series and in the playoffs, right? So even if the Celtics were clearly, clearly the better team coming into the series and clearly the better team over the course of the series uh, compared to a Bucks team who has lost Middleton, it was still way too close. And some of that is is due to three-point variance, right? Yeah, like Connaughton, it felt like he couldn't miss a shot the whole series. Right. Game seven, he can't make a shot. Right. You know, it, it, sometimes that's the way the ball just bounces. I will say, though, to the Celtics' credit, I thought they really trusted their reads on offense. Like, they, they were patient. Now, part of that is it, it may have felt more patient because they had so much trouble initiating early offense. But in the half court, they executed their sets. They dealt with the traps. You know, because, like, I would say that generally speaking, as you astutely pointed out, Milwaukee's a team that, they sell out to protect the rim and they'll concede the three, especially they'll concede non-corner threes. They're okay with wing threes above the break threes, that kind of stuff. But there was an adjustment that they made. And I think they overcorrected by really oversending help to Tatum. He would make that first pass. And then there was like a ping, ping, ping pass. And it was like one after another, then someone would have a wide open three. So I thought it's true that Milwaukee missed some open looks. But there was, there was a way that the ball was moving. Like, there's an energy to the ball. I mean, Vivek, you've played basketball. When, when you feel the ball and, and it's kind of just moving around, it just kind of gives you a rhythm. There, there's something to that. And part of that is, again, the sense of chemistry this team has, right? Part of it's also, like, when you were stopping the other team, like, they were demoralizing the Bucks at some points just from what they were doing defensively. And I'm sure that gave them energy, too. But I think that helps. And let's not forget, they were at home in a game seven. And, and that matters as well. We know that role players shoot better. Does Grant Williams hit all these threes on the road? Does Pritchard go on fire on the road? I don't I don't think that's as likely. It's it's true. And you know, the 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 home playoff game definitely helped us in this series. But I can't I can't go against the Bucks throwing that game because you know, the Nets 
Celtics series could easily have gotten six games and Jalen Brown could have turned an ankle. And then all of a sudden the whole world changes, right? Unfortunately, the Bucks, even though they had an easy series, they lost Middleton, right? And that's just, that was just like a random turn. But if you had to play the odds, a tough six or seven game series and in, uh, an important injury is more likely. Fortunately, that didn't happen to, to the Celtics and it, they didn't pay the price of that, but they could have, right? And then we'd be, be having a different conversation today. So, you know, I, I still think it's an open question about what to do in that circumstance. With regards to the threes and the ball movement, I think this comes back to self-belief, right? When a team believes in itself, they keep going for that. You know, Grant Williams missed like three or four straight wide, wide open threes early in the game. But he kept shooting and they kept passing to him, right? Other Bro, teams he took are... 18 threes in this game. Grant Williams took 18 threes. Yeah, he never stopped, seven. right? And, yeah. you know, the... Ultimately, the odds corrected themselves, right? After missing three straight wide open corner threes from the same exact spot, you know, some people would lose confidence or some teammates would lose confidence. And they didn't. Right. They like believed in the system. No, you're right. It's a testament to the teammates as much as it's to him. They kept feeding him the ball. They weren't like, oh, this guy's cold. They're like, all right, let's, let's keep doing it. Let's, let's trust the read. Let's do the right play. And they did it over and over again. I mean, even Derek White kept shooting, even though in his case, <laughs> the numbers would favor not doing that. Yeah. Derek White, you know, he's competent defensively. I actually think he's a pretty much a plus defender, but offensively, sometimes he just hurts them so much that I, I, this was a game where they kind of pulled him a bit. Yeah. Until later on, where they, they maybe needed a little bit more from him. But, you know, Pritchard had a role to play in part because Derek White was so inconsistent with his jumper this whole series. Yeah. I can't even believe Pritchard is playable, honestly. Like, I don't understand how he doesn't get attacked on defense every single play, like what they did to Connington and what they did to Grayson Allen, right? But somehow he lasts in the minutes he's out there. Well, far be it from me to find criticism in Giannis for the way that he played. I think you and I would both agree, and we've said this in our text chats and, and offline, that we believe that Giannis is clearly now the best player in the world. But the one thing that he doesn't do is he's not going to switch hunt a guy like, you know, like a guard and then just sort of, sort of take them, like dribble them into the post. It's not really his game. He's still yeah. a guy who ultimately... Drew Holiday could do that, right? Sure. I mean, someone could have done but Even Drew Holiday, like, for much, he's such a valuable basketball player. Honestly, he's an amazing basketball player. I think he's one of those guys, like, you can you can know a lot about how much somebody actually watches basketball, but how they view Drew Holiday. Are they just looking at the stats? Are they watching the actual game? Because he's always more impactful than whatever his numbers show. But Drew Holiday, that's really not his game either. Right? He's not really an isolation guy to take someone like that. Yeah. And you know whose game that is? Middleton's. Yeah, if anyone on this team, it, it, that's where they miss Middleton. I mean, they miss that guy who can just get those buckets. Like, they got to really run that pick and roll with Giannis, where Giannis is the screen setter. He did it with Drew as much as they could. But, you know, one of the things that we have to talk about, dude, talk about pick and roll defense, the efficiency as a combination when Al Horford and Jason Tatum are together on a pick and roll, teams are scoring. 0.25 points per possession in the pick and roll. I mean, that shows that, it, it, like, it not, obviously it's not just the two of them. It's the supporting defense around it. And part of it is just the anemic offenses that they face. But then we can't even say that because they face Kyrie, they face Durant, they face all kinds of people. When that pairing is involved, they're not getting anything out of it. Yeah, I mean, Al Horford's always been a phenomenal defender, right? The only players who ever give Al Horford ever a problem are like peak LeBron, peak Giannis, peak Embiid, right? 
those are the only guys that that really give that over. I think LeBron him. knocked him out some ridiculous amount of years in a row. And I remember Al Horford's sister had this huge like he would every year when the playoffs came around, he have she'd have all these anti-LeBron posts because she's a little bit salty about it. Yeah, and, but if you don't have a guy like that, Al Horford's like is 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 just one of the best defenders in the league, right? He's been like that for the last ten or fifteen years, and he's perfect for the modern NBA, right? That's why you know when the Celtics had. Hayward and Kyrie and Horford and these two amazing young wings, everyone thought they they theoretically could have been good enough to take down Golden State because they were constructed perfectly, right? Vivek, let's move on a little bit more to our, just talking about the Bucks side of this thing. We mentioned Giannis, how dominant he was. I mean, even in this game, this man puts up a 25, 20, and 9. I mean, it, it's, like, it's like video game numbers, right? And, and I thought that he missed some bunnies that I've almost never seen him miss. And maybe that was fatigue. Maybe it was just desperation. Who knows what what really led to that? I felt bad for him in some ways. Not in the sense of like, you know, it's not going to affect his legacy anyway. But when you are in this category of player, every year you don't win is kind of a setback because... But, you know, in, in some ways, this series enhanced his legacy. Just like last year's series enhanced Durant's legacy, right? Even though Durant lost that series, he, got, he, he staked his claim as the best player of the world. Right? Yeah, I feel you. He got pushed to the limit. So the right. same way Giannis got pushed to the absolute limit this year, and he staked his claim very clearly as the best player in the, in the world. Especially I agree. after Durant got shut down. He's clearly the best player in, in, in the world. Yeah. There's really no argument to me. I mean, he just has a physical domination that's unparalleled and, and basically few in the NBA have ever had. Yeah. I, it's, it's like guys like Wilt, Shaq, prime LeBron, like guys were just so physically imposing that it just throws your entire scheme out of whack, right? He's in that category of basketball player. And now he's got the skill. He just plays so fucking hard. He's such a good defensive player. There's no question about it. I'm just saying from the perspective of history, right? He has, and I can't believe I'm saying this. I really think he has Mount Rushmore level talent. That means that he has the potential. If You know, his ceiling is to be one of the four or so greatest basketball players that ever lived. He really can be that. Like if, but he, what what is the difference between him being that or not being that? It's accumulating titles first and foremost. But on top of that, obviously more hardware, more you know MVPs, maybe even another defensive player of the year. It's possible with him. So every year that you don't achieve any of those things is is is, is a loss in that sense. I'm talking about from a historical perspective, not like a he's the best I, I guy right now. When you're at that level, right, you need multiple titles. And also truly memorable series where you where you really showed how much better you are than everyone else in the league. Like right. when we talk about Jordan, we don't just talk about the six title years, right? We talk about when he scored 63 points against the Celtics in round one, right? We talk no about question. that shot, right? We but talk- I, I think we have that conversation sort of so vividly and fondly in our minds because we know that he then goes on to win the six titles, right? Like otherwise, like we, we've seen guys like, you know, not to talk too much about the other series, but a guy like Chris Paul, when he's had a game winner against San Antonio, it doesn't mean anything if ultimately he doesn't come through down the road. He's kind of remembered as almost a choker more than those kind of moments. And yeah. maybe in his case, it's fair. We'll, we'll have that chat. But I, so I, I just felt like there, there was a part of me that thought that in that sense, if I'm honest, I'm looking around, I don't see any team out there that's a true juggernaut, right? And I think if they had a healthy Middleton, they would probably have won the series. Now that's, who knows? We don't really know how it would have played out. But I think it's fair to say that as close as these teams were coming to a game seven, that if they had their second best player and really their their true 
sort of closers. You know, I hate using that phrase sometimes, but the guy, you know, that wing threat, right, to close games out for you. If they had him, they would probably have won. And I don't see anyone else that would have beaten a full-strength Milwaukee team with the way that Giannis is playing right now. So it was a wasted year in that sense. And he didn't get any MVP trophies out of it. No, nothing really to show for his dominance besides, like you said, winning the minds and hearts of everyone around the NBA. There's no more Durant's the best argument, LeBron. No one cares about those guys. It's Giannis's league. We understand that. But when I was thinking about this, I just thought about their offseason and some of the moves they made. I mean, we have to talk about the fact that P.J. Tucker played a big role on this team. Now, I get it. He got torched by Kevin Durant last year, but he made him work. He definitely made him work, right? Like, it wasn't like he wasn't there. Katie was just making crazy shots. And he played a big role, you know, in the finals as well. Just doing little things. They could have signed this guy for two years, 15 million. They passed on it. They filled in that role with Grayson Allen, who was utterly terrible, Vivek. He was unplayable, frankly, and, and for some reason, Bud persisted with him, right? That was the first personal decision that I think ended up backfiring. The second one was, man, you know what they really have used this series? Dante Givincenzo. I know that Dante did not play a role in the title run last year because he was hurt, but he's the exact kind of guard they needed. Someone who can like hold their own on defense, not really be exploited, but also at the same time can you know slash and create, but also hit a three here and there and has like some big game chops. I feel like they got rid of him. They got back Serge Ibaka. I don't even know what happened to Serge Ibaka. I feel like he's barely played basketball the last couple of years. I mean, he barely played for the Clippers. He's barely played for the Bucks now. He's basically washed. They tried the, the Bryn Forbes experiment. Didn't quite work out. I mean, I, I agree with you. I, didn't, I never understood the Dante DiVincenzo trade. I've always liked him since college. He's just been, the, he's been a heady player who plays well in the playoffs, plays well when it's important. And like you said, you know, I, I disagree a little bit with the P.J. Tucker side of things because what they needed here was wings and, and creators, right? And Dante DiVincenzo is a wing who can stay on the court in important moments and create every once in a while, right? And games here are decided by just a few points, so possession here or there. And I think he could have made a difference. They still would have lost. They needed Middleton. Like you said, even as a Celtics fan, seeing the Bucks team now and Giannis at this level, if I had to pick between our two teams – at the very least, it's 50-50, if not slight bucks edge, right? Yeah. And, like, I'm not saying that P.J. Tucker is a world beater. But let's not forget, they replaced him with Grayson Allen. So you would I mean, have I'd rather have P.J. Tucker than, than Bobby Portis. Portis did fine in the series, but I'd rather have P.J. Tucker. Yeah, and also, like, it, it, there's an opportunity cost because you can't, the way the salary cap works, you can't just fill his salary with equivalent salary. Right. They're already, like, above the, the salary cap. So... You're just losing that and replacing with a minimum player, effectively, or a guy on an exception. So that was a pure financial savings cut. And if I'm Giannis, I'm like, what the fuck? We won the championship. Like, what are we doing here? Like, you know what I mean? I mean, as we know, owners and GMs don't always keep those legacies in mind, right? Obviously, last dance, the Bulls, the greatest team ever, and they were too cheap to pay those guys, right? I so mean, we right. saw that in some ways, just this year, last year or so with the Lakers, right? I mean, they, yes, they got Westbrook, but they also made some cost-cutting moves. You know, they lost Caruso for nothing. You know, they, they could have retained some more talent. They didn't, so. I, I can't talk about the Lakers. I can't talk about the Lakers. I can't talk about the Sixers, and I can't talk about the Nets anymore. <laughs> oh, God, they didn't even make the second round. Fair <laughs> enough, fair enough, no. no. It's blasphemous to bring up the Lakers on a pod where the Celtics have now advanced to a conference finals. The Boston Celtics have appeared 
in one half of all Eastern Conference Finals that ever existed. That's Talk about franchise dominance. Yeah, I mean, it shows the the value of a well-run organization, right? And again, this organization has made mistakes, but on balance, law of averages, they do well because they're well-run. And again, coming from Nick's fandom, you see how much management matters, how much ownership matters. It does, sadly. We'll never be good as long as that doesn't change. This is a reality. Yeah, and like there's some teams like the Lakers, they can be run incompetently and, and randomly they'll just have superstars run to them, but that's the exception, not the norm. And even in that situation, bad ownership can mess it up, right? The Celtics, they've had this same ownership group, more or less the same. They had Denny's there forever. They had you know Brad Stevens there forever. They've tried to keep a core, they've resisted. You're right, they've hunted free agents in the past, they've explored trading people, they did trade Isaiah Thomas, but they've kept this core in place. And it's paying dividends. I think right now, this is actually the team that should be favored with the title. I know that right now on the odds is Golden State, according to Vegas. I don't buy that for one second. To me, Celtics have to be considered the favorites. They're they're just too good defensively. But unlike say like Miami, they just have a better offensive firepower to them. They have Jason Tatum, who proved he can go head to head against even Giannis and KD. If you can go head to head against those guys, you he can certainly go head to head against Butler. You know, and I think this might be a good segue into, into our next game potentially. But my worry with the with the Celtics, again, it's the offense, right? You know, we, we lived and died by the three. You know, we rarely had transition opportunities. And some of that is the Bucks defense, but that's also sort of how we play, right? And even though we have plenty of good three-point shooters, Tatum's a good three-point shooter, Brown's a good three-point shooter, uh, Grant Williams is a good three-point shooter. Somehow the regular season numbers actually prove true. Horford is a three-point shooter. Smart's gotten much better, right? Sometimes we're not we're not the Golden State Warriors, right? Some and even the Golden State Warriors at their peak sometimes died by the three, right? They would have Curry would have terrible three-point shooting games and they would lose games. And I think you know though we're called title favors favorites, I can't be overconfident because it's going to just take two or three bad shooting performances to to change the series completely. To be clear, you guys are not the title favorites. I think they're the title favorites, but you're yeah. right. Listen, yeah. that's the modern NBA, right? People jack up a lot of threes, and 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 you saw a game like this. Like, the, the Bucks, they could play 10 games and never shoot this badly again, honestly, for wide-open threes. But they did, and, and they lost. And that's the way, you know, it goes. In a weird way, the, the, these playoffs are, are both a victory and a loss for, for the numbers analytics type of people, right? They've been telling us all year that the Celtics, for the last six months, have been this outrageously good team who are far and away the best team in the league right and until the last few weeks i don't think the majority of the league and even some of the people some of the fan base didn't believe in them and only in the last few weeks they were like wow these numbers are actually telling the truth yep. same thing about the grizzlies with john moran right people are like oh this is kind of a cute story and then all of a sudden they're actually as good as the numbers suggest grant williams three-point shooting this might be a cute story is this real or is this not real even when i saw him shoot for most of the series i was like i expected him to miss and he kept making them, right? The numbers told the truth. And then we see the other series where the numbers told us this one team was the best team in the league by a country mile the whole year and does not prove to be well, true. That was a, a great A transition, which, by the way, I don't quite agree with, but we'll get to that in a second because I actually think the numbers show something a little bit different with the Suns. But we'll dive into the numbers. Can we just, for a second, just sit here and, you know, we're talking about the Suns and the Mavs now. For those of you who who were lying under a rock and didn't see what happened in this unbelievable game in which somehow 
at home, this game was literally over at halftime. I watched the TNT guys at halftime try their absolute hardest to say there was some kind of... At some point, <laughs> Barkley was like, well, they're going to try to cut an 18 by the end of the third quarter. I'm like, oh boy, dude, this is going this is over. This shit is over. And I texted you this immediately while this was happening. That game broke my brain. Luca broke my brain along with the Suns' brains, apparently. It was just... It was the most shocking loss I can remember. And maybe I, I wasn't in the same mindset or watching this closely when we've had previous shocking losses, like the 2007 Mavs getting blown out by the by the Golden State Warriors back then. Maybe I was too young to appreciate it then, but I, I was just stunned. I cannot remember a basketball game where the outcome was so out of loop with what my head expected. The whole series, right? The whole series... Me, and I think a lot of people just expected the Suns to pull it out at some point. Oh, a cute story. The Mavs won at home. Great, blah, blah, blah. They're going to they're gonna close it out in game five or game six or game seven, and it's going to be over. And I think there's there, there's two, two stories behind that. One, maybe the Suns weren't as good as we thought, and I think you're going to get into that, and I'll let you get into that next. But I think at least part of the story is three-point variance, right? This is why everyone said, you cannot let Luca get to a game seven. You can't get these series to game sevens because anything can happen in a single game. And the Suns, who are a, a phenomenal three-point shooting team, CP3 and Booker, who are ridiculously good three-point shooters and have consistently been amazing shooters for two whole seasons, suddenly couldn't make a shot. Meanwhile, Luca, who for all his brilliance is a subpar three-point shooter, is making step. Yeah, step yep. back, turn around, one-legged, fadeaway threes. It just made no sense. But here's the rub, Vivek, and this is why you have to look a little bit deeper with the numbers, right? It's true that the Suns have a variety of very efficient three-point shooters, but they have one of the worst shot profiles in the NBA. This was true in the regular season, and it's been true in the playoffs. They take an exorbitant number of mid-range jumpers. They somehow maintain a top five offense consisting on mid-range jumpers because they have two of the great mid-range jump shooters in the NBA in Booker and Chris Paul, right? They don't get to the rim. They don't get to the free throw line. And they don't take a lot of threes. They were 15th out of 16 teams in the playoffs at three-point attempts. And that's why even in the losses that the Mavericks had, the analytics really showed that if you look at the expected average value of each shot taken they should have been winning those games pretty handily even the ones they lost in phoenix but, but they're they're but young players on the road couldn't get it done right but no. we always talk sorry to interrupt but we always talk in playoffs how in the playoffs the math doesn't make as much sense those mid-range two-point shots that every every team gives up are actually the shots that become much more important in the playoffs so if anything the fact that they were ridiculously good at doing that for two straight years should have been a playoff advantage, not a disadvantage. I, I completely disagree. For this reason, Vivek, you're correct, okay? But you got to look at it like this. The goal of the offense has to be to get easy shots, right? As a scheme, you should be scheming to get layups, free throws, and threes. Now, the best defenses will take those things away. They'll take away those options. Then you're late in the shot clock, and then your guys, like the real stars, the ones who've done over the last you know 20 years or so, the Dirks, the LeBrons, they make those tough shots, right? Luca's been doing that now. 
But the goal of those teams is still get threes, get layups, get free throws. The Suns have this inverted. They, You're right. They have amazing tough shot makers. That's why in clutch games throughout this regular season, they were really good. Like if you look at games in a certain margin, they can make those difficult shots, right? Down the stretch where the defense is only conceding that. But you can't be gunning to take those shots, right? Like ultimately, they're losing the math battle. They're taking threes. You're taking twos. They're contested. Or even open mid-range twos. You're but not they, getting free throw line. They've been, do, they've been losing the math battle for two years and winning sixty plus games and making it to the finals. I feel you, but that's that's because they're so good at that last component, which is making those tough shots, right? But like, it's not. It's just suboptimal ultimately. And and there's a ceiling on how far you can go with that kind of basketball. Mid-range dominated offense has not prevailed in the NBA in a very long time. If you look at the last 12, 13 years or so. Every single champion was in the top five, specifically, of three-point attempts. So if you're not attempting them, you're not going to win. It's not even about efficiency. Like, you you remember the 2020 Lakers team that didn't really have great efficiency, but they put up a lot of volume of threes, right? That's the right shot profile. Then when you shut that down, when it really matters, you need that Kobe, you need that LeBron, you need that whoever to make those tough shots. They have that, but then their shot diet is wrong, which is really brings us to the most interesting question here. Why is that the case? Is it that Mondu Williams is scheming that way? Or is there a bigger fundamental problem with Chris Paul and Devin Booker? Is the problem that they cannot put pressure on the rim sufficiently enough to get those free throws or those layups or cause the defense to collapse in, thus getting those kickouts? They certainly had three-point shooters on that team. Bridges can shoot. Cam Johnson can shoot. Crowder's had you know, a bit of research as a shooter. Uh, you mentioned Booker and Paul themselves. To me, what it really speaks to is you have two guys, especially Paul at this, at this stage of his career. You know, it used to be you had to drop against Chris Paul. He was getting a layup. He was that fast. And then if you dropped against him, you had that beautiful mid-range jumper, right? Guess what dried up after game two for the Phoenix Suns? They showed hard on that, and they had no fear of Chris Paul beating the big man around and then getting to, getting to the rim because he doesn't have that burst anymore. And Booker, for all, as good as he is, that's not really his game. So they trapped him, and then he, he wasn't good as a passer to, to punish the way that Jason Tatum was in Game 7. So I think Monty Williams could maybe do a better job of the scheme, but I think the fundamental problem is they don't have a guy to really just get put pressure on the rim over and over again. I mean, Booker I, is supposed to be that person. I know it's not his game, but that's his job in this series, right? It shouldn't, like you said, I think the bigger story of this series was not the Mavs offense. It's not even Luka, right? I, I know... Big picture, grand view of, of the of the NBA. Luca may be the story, but in this in this series, I think the big story, the big picture story, was not Luca. Was not the Mavs offense. It was the Mavs defense and the inability of the Suns to score. I mean, they scored twenty seven points and a half, right? And you're right. You know, the engine of their offense is a 36, 37 year old point guard who maybe cannot be the engine of the main engine of an offense anymore. You know who should be doing it then? It should be Booker, right? And I don't know what happened to Booker in this series. You know, again, when we talk about analytics and sample size and all this stuff, we have this huge sample size that Booker is a great player, right? He's been consistent. He's come up big in important games. He's got 40 points in the finals against the Bucks defense, which is a very good defense multiple times and full of great defenders against Drew Holiday, right? Yeah. And he can't do it against the Mavs. I just... That just broke my brain. Like the Mavs, we talked about this. They don't have 
great defenders. They have Dorian Finney-Smith, who's apparently even a better defender than I thought, right? Yeah. And, Everyone and, in America came to that realization. Yeah. Like and, then, and then other than him, my mental image of, this, of the Mavs was four average to below average defenders surrounding, surrounding him. And all of a sudden, they shut, they shut down a top five defense. I just, I, even now, looking back, watching the highlights, thinking about it, I just don't understand what happened. Somehow, maybe Jason Kidd is just a wizard. I, 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 just explain to me what the Mavs defense did. And is it that all their players are much better defenders than we thought? Was it an amazing scheme by Jason Kidd? Or was it just the Suns not showing up to perform? Or a combination of all these things? I mean, it's definitely in all of the above. And yeah. But we'll get to the specifics of what happened, right? So a couple of things were happening. In the first two games, especially in game two, the Mavs were conceding switches too easily. And Booker and Chris Paul over and over again targeted Luka. And Luka had a horrible game in that game in particular. They scored 1.8 points per possession when they were going up against Luka. And then, you know, he got, they kind of made fun of him in the, in the post game. And then, you know, the national media got on him. The Mavs did a couple of really important things after that to, to change the momentum. The first thing they did was they didn't give up that switch as easily. And part of that is, like, Luka would do a hard hedge and then he'd run to recover. So the switch didn't come as easily. When there was switches, because you can't avoid them altogether, he actually played with some effort. The thing with Luka is he doesn't play hard on defense, but unlike a lot of the, the players who actually really struggle at defense, he's big. He's 6'8", he's strong, and he's smart. And so, like, if he puts in some level of effort, he, there's no reason that someone like like Chris Paul should just roast him over and over again. He could at least stand there and be a 6'8 guy that he's a shootover, right? I mean, even he's just so much bigger even than Booker. So part of it is just effort right there right, on his part. The scheme adjustments, they made a real point, especially after Game 5, of really trapping Devin Booker. They did not believe in his passing. And it, and it showed that he's not quite there as a passer. I don't think that's ever been really been his game. This is a man who we know can score. He scored 70 points in an NBA game. Which is absurd, granted, in a they kind of forced that and it was it was a kind of a, a joke in some ways, but still he did it, you know, it's on the record. Like it's not easy to do that. But passing is sort of the weaker part of his game. And I think they they completely stopped dropping against Chris Paul. And they just put a second guy in his face and they said, you know what? We're gonna have the big man come up. We don't think you can beat him around the corner, and we're gonna live whatever you do. And and he just completely got shot down from that. About the personnel. I think the Dallas Mavericks, they're not like the Celtics. We talked about the Celtics. We said, I, I, I said, I, I really believe they have like seven good to elite defenders. That's not the case with the Mavs. They have better defenders than you, we might think because I, I do think Fiddy Smith is, is competent. Maxi Kleba is a very switchable big. He's one of those guys that, for some reason, every team likes to go at one-on-one, -on -one, but he kind of holds his own consistently and he also has some spacing on the other end, which is nice. And then, you know... Reggie Bullock, who was on my New York Knicks as recently as a season ago, has somehow turned into this like elite defensive guard, which makes no sense to me at all. But you're right, though. When I look at their roster, I see a lot of guys who I'm like, well, they still have Jalen Brunson. He's small. You know, they, just, they have a lot of guys that I feel like I could, I, are targetable. But that's the other thing that I, I think needs to be made a, a point at here. Luca relentlessly hunted whoever he wanted to another team. And while Chris Paul and Devin Booker did it in game two against the Mavs, they didn't hold up the rest of the way. They could not punish switches anymore after that. And again, that speaks to their limitations as elite players. 
they have certain things they do, but I don't know at any point, Vivek, if you ever really believed that, he, I mean, obviously Chris Paul in his prime was, but that this version of Chris Paul or Devin Booker were really top 10 NBA players. I did not think that. I know that, you know, Devin Booker, you know, going to make all NBA team. That's not the same thing as literally being one of the five best players, though. He just doesn't have that in him. Not yet. You know, maybe you'll get there. He's still young, but he doesn't have that. You know, growing up, you were always a big fan of, of players who are great passers. I yep. think this series, this series has shown us and that maybe never before in the NBA has elite passing been a more important skill. Right? Indeed. I watch Luca play, and I, I see the shots he's taking and the plays he's making, and most of the time I'm like, he just makes it look so easy. He's just backing down, backing down, backing down, one leg, step back, backing down, backing back down, a little pump fake and ender. And part of that is his amazing footwork, understandably. But some of that is it's so easy for him because they can't double cover. They can't bring help because he'll just destroy them immediately. So Bro, every single time he plays anyone. This has been the reason that LeBron is one of the second or third greatest player of all time. Right. And, and, and you remember, Luka is a guy who idolized LeBron James. And it's a very weird comparison because LeBron is, if not the most athletic player to ever play in the NBA, he's like right up there with Wilt. Or and Giannis, like these like freak of amongst freaks, and Luca is anything but that. So you, it doesn't make sense that they'd be like similar basketball players, but they but in that sense, they really are. There's three things about them that are, are, are very similar. The first is they are ruthless switch hunters, especially LeBron, like sort of post you know Miami era or even Miami onwards. He will find them and go up and oh, he'll call four picks on them. Same with Luca, they'll do it until. Like they just give it up, right? At some point, they're gonna something's gonna break, and it'll do it over and over again. Second thing is you can't double them because they're both amazing passers, and Luke has all of LeBron's passes, including that cross court one that goes right to the shooter, and he has like that height that they can go over the the defense, right? When you trap Chris Paul, Chris Paul's one of the greatest passes in NBA history. Chris Paul can't make that pass over the double all the way across the court the way that Luke and LeBron can. And then if you don't, if you leave them in some coverage, they can punish you. And they will score and they'll beat you. But honestly, if Chris Paul was five years ago, Chris Paul, the Suns win the series, right? Because he would have split the trap or something like that. Exactly. So because, and the the problem, the reason they lost the series is Booker cannot pass to the level of Chris Paul, right? Chris Paul can no longer be that primary creator, which is fine. He's still a great player. Yeah, Yeah, he's still a great player, a great passer. He'd he'd, He'd be a ridiculously good secondary facilitator, right? And the sad story of his career is... He just had bad timing, right? You put the 2018 Rockets in this playoffs, and they just demolish everyone. They would just annihilate everyone. Disagree. Right? Hard disagree. You, I don't you, believe in James Harden. I just don't believe in him. Come on. That team took the greatest team of all time and almost took, beat them, right? Yeah, it was, I, I feel you. it was a phenomenal team. And I think, hands down, the 2018 Rockets, barring some catastrophic hardened, hardened choke job, which is possible, I agree. I mean, here's the thing, Vivek. That 2018 Rockets team had to play game six and seven without Chris Paul. And why was that? Because he gets injured every year. At some point, that has to be built in to our analysis of him, of any team that he's on, right? If you are dependent, I think you framed this really well, Vivek, because it's almost as if he has to do everything. And we know that we can't count on this man to have four healthy playoff routes. Yeah. And he's getting older by the year and he's not as fast anymore. And now teams are trying to recognize it. 
Yeah, right? and that's again, that's not th- not to take anything away from Chris Paul. Right? We love Chris Paul, and he's the point guard. He's just thirty-seven, yeah. right? This is the series where Booker has to be ninety percent of Luca, right? And he's just not, right? He, it's especially bad Booker not to make this like the, the to bring up the whole drama of the series. But he was the guy who mocked Luca and had the whole thing, and yeah. he was lying down. And I mean, that's just and then that's immaturity, right? But but let me let me tell you this, Vivek. There's something that no one is talking about. And I, I want to bring this up. And I want to give JJ Reddick credit for this. On his podcast, some time ago, it was in the middle of regular season, he had Luke on as a guest. And he brought up a point. He said, hey, Luke, I've been noticing something. You are actually going at, in switch hunting, you're going at the best players on their team. That's weird. Like, the, like the, you know, there's a couple guys in the NBA who are offensive hubs, but they're also, like, pretty good defensive players. And they're the guys you don't ever see people go at, right? So, like, guys like Jimmy. Kawhi, LeBron, Chris, right? These are guys that like, they might not guard the Liberty's best player every time, but they have reputation for a reason. They have the track record. And Luke had an interesting response to that. And he said, you know what? I think that if I do that, I can wear them out. And they're very important to their offense, but they're not playing defense like that every single time on switches. No one ever switch hunched those guys. Yeah, and interesting that the only guy who, who, I guess he sort of succeeded, but to someone else's benefit is Kawhi, right? who actually both guarded him and played ridiculously well at offense and took him down, right? Because he's Kawhi and amazing. But then he got injured the next series because he... So, I, so I would argue that the Kawhi did absolutely nothing to stop Luka whatsoever. I, I literally did nothing what to stop What I mean is he, 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 Luka tried that strategy on Kawhi and Kawhi didn't tire out and still won the No, series. see, yeah. this is a bit different. I, I want to be very clear for anyone listening here. Kawhi guarded Luka, right? And then what Luka would do is either he would just take him or he would find a weak guy on their team Often Beverly was such a good defender, but just too small. And he forced the switch and he would take him, right? Now, this season, what Reddick pointed out and asked Luca about was, now you're hunting that guy. You're hunting Kawhi. You're hunting Jimmy. You're hunting LeBron. You're hunting Chris. These guys who, they don't guard the best guy anymore all the time, right? But they're good defenders. You wouldn't switch hunt them in that way. And he said, I, I think I can wear them down. And that's exactly what he did in this playoff series. I remember that. I was like, wow. He wore Chris Paul down. I've not seen anyone go at Chris Paul like this. Because even a guy like Durant back in the day, you know, he had trouble with, with, with the way that Chris Paul would use leverage. But that's because, you know, first of all, Chris Paul's older. But also, this is a big dude coming at him, bumping him over and over again. I thought he took his legs right out from under him. It's a huge reason why he struggled. But what's most fascinating about this, not just the strategy of this idea, is the ball that this guy has. He's so confident that he can take anybody in the league one-on-one, that he picks the guys with the good reputations and goes after those guys. But, you know, we already knew that about Luka, right? We already knew that he was going to do that after the Clippers series, right? Luka, I mean, he was so impressive in that first Clippers series when he took on PG3 and Kawhi, who were two of the best wing defenders in the league. Well, if you Unbelievable. Pick, if, you, if you picked two people to stop Luka, it would be those two guys that year, right? And he just invested with a all NBA first team around that I mean, time. Of Beverly's life. too small, but those guys would be the guys. Yeah. And he just eviscerated them. So we already knew he could do that. You know, I texted you during the game. The thing that surprised me about Luca in this game was just how cold he was, right? The laughter. <laughs> yeah. It's not just, you know, it's not just that he's a competitive guy, that he loves competing against the best players and all this other stuff. And he loves to win. Right? I think LeBron is like that, right? LeBron is not afraid of people. He loves competing. He loves to win. He hates losing. He's a hyper-competitive guy. 
right? But he's not the type of guy who laughs in other people's faces as he absolutely crushes them. He might be callous, right? He might laugh yeah. when Wade is with his buddies like Wade, right? He might he might laugh when he just like beats Toronto casually, but he doesn't willingly go out there, take someone's heart out, eat it, crush them, and laugh in their face and walk away. That's not LeBron's personality, right? I feel and you. Apparently, apparently that's Luca's personality, right? He's he, just like he just he, he not only eviscerated the Suns, he ended Paul's career in embarrassing fashion. He laughed in his face while doing it and did it with two step back threes at the end of the half, which I, I haven't seen a superstar do that intentionally since like Kobe. And Kobe tried to do it and didn't do it. It wasn't always successful at doing right. it. But Luca's actually successfully doing that. And just the sense of the moment, right? Like he comes out, he scores like eight of the first 10 points. And and just the, the way he's laughing as he's doing it, it felt like really soon that other team over there, they knew, oh boy, we're in trouble. Like we don't have an answer to this guy. And he won the game in the first half. It, it was over after that. And I, I think just he won the game with him. those two step back threes. It went from 20, which is like, okay, maybe theoretically we could come back here to 30. And it was just over. You know? It was over. It was over. And he was laughing. And that team had no spirit after they got booed by their own home fans. They left that game early. I just got to say about Luka Doncic, man. This guy. You know, we talked about Giannis, that he could be a, a Mount Rushmore player. I really genuinely believe that Luka has that ability too. And it's so interesting because... When I think about the, the, the guys who are really on the upper echelon of all-time players, they're two-way players. And Luca, you know, at best, he, he can... I don't know what he can be, but right now, he, I would say he's a below-average defender. Is that fair? Would you agree with that, Vivek? Yeah, I mean, he definitely is a below-average defender. I mean, when, he, when the Warriors play him and Curry switches on him or gets a switch with him on him, that's, I think, one of the measures we're going to get about what Luca is capable of or is there players that can really, really expose him a little bit, you know? Yeah, see, I, I, it's so interesting because I look at that totally the opposite way. I think he is going to wreck Jordan Poole and Steph and all those guys because he's relentless in a way in switch hunting that Steph has never been. There's a reason that switching was the way that the Warriors were stopped in 2016. And that's Steph at his peak, right? That's what the Thunder did to them and really you know took them to Game 7. And it's what the, the Cavs did to them and beat them. Then they got the best switch-killing guy of all time, or one of them, in Kevin Durant. You can't switch against Kevin Durant. He's just, that's crazy. Like, he'll just kill a guard or whatever, whoever you put on him. So, I don't know if that's really Steph's strength, but I, I just want to focus on Luka for a second here. Luka Doncic is so special. I mean, we should have known when this guy was like a pro at 13 years old, when he was winning European championships against grown-ass men at 17 years old, that he was legitimate. He's got so much poise. His footwork is, you, know, you mentioned Jordan and Kobe. To me, the, the thing that I think of when I think of those two guys, especially late career with those two guys, as guards, had such incredible footwork. Same with Luka, man. His footwork is pristine. He at least has two up and unders per game. Per game, right? And then he has like some like big man moves too. Like he'll have like a drop step of the shoulder into the guy, then hook shot. You know, like he, he's got it all. I mean, he posted up their center. Posted up. He didn't try to spin move him. He didn't try to drive past him. He didn't try to bring him back to the three-point line. He straight up posted DeAndre Ayton and scored up and laughed as he walked away. It was insane. This is the man who looks for Jimmy Butler to, <laughs> to get a switch. I'm telling you. I'm telling you right now. This is my us week. 
when you edit this podcast, please give me a hot take alert. Hot take alert. My hot take here, and this is half because I just love this guy so much that I'm going for this hot take. I am predicting that I think I think Luka Doncic is going to be a problem for the for these Golden State Warriors. I, I think the Mavs are going to take this, and some all the other. This guy is going to take this extremely underwhelming team to the NBA Finals. I, I just listen. A lot has to go right. I understand this is a crazy prediction in some ways. I think they're sound enough defensively as a team. They've been a really elite defense. The numbers have told us. You talk about advanced stats. They've told us for a while the Mavs are really good on defense. It didn't seem believable for the reasons you were saying, but it's been borne out, right? They've they've played well this whole playoffs, and games three through seven were unbelievable from them. Luka is a problem. I don't know who's going to guard them. And the thing with Luka is, like, let's say Wiggins, by some miracle, or Kaminga, or whoever you want to say, is actually Luka's offer, which, by the way, he's not. If Mikhail Bridges couldn't even bother him, if Kawhi Leonard couldn't bother him, ain't nobody who's going to bother him. But let's say they could. He's just going to do that classic thing that, like, LeBron would do. Like, he would just find the weak guy and force a switch. And the Warriors switch more than anybody. He's going to find Jordan Poole. He's going to find these guys. and going to go after them over and over again. I don't know how they're going to stop him because he will make those passes. I really think it comes down to, can those role players hit threes? I don't know if I trust them enough to do that or to just make enough open shots and open plays. But, like, they'll have good shot quality against this Warriors team. I, I think this Warriors team is a better overall team than the Mavs, but they're a flawed team, in my opinion. I mean, I think it comes down to three-point variance, right? If Golden State just starts shooting the lights out, they're going to beat the Mavs, right? If they right. don't, they're going to lose. Because you're right. In a grounded-out game, Luka's just going to beat them, right? And, and that's the beauty. Yes. Yeah. You know, we talked about Giannis before, how you know so much of his offense is transition-dependent, right? It's transition-dependent or... or he needs someone to set the screen for him, and he's kind of like the, the big man, like the Shaq type guy, right? He has to be fed, or he's the role man. Luca, the pace is whatever he wants it to be. I hate to keep bringing up LeBron because it's such a weird guy to compare anyone to, right? He was like sort of the outside player of the last generation. But that's another thing, like just he, because he can get the rebound, just set the pace of whatever he wants. And it seems like the game is always going at his pace, whatever he wants. It's the same thing with Luca. It's just it's going at his pace, so you'll you'll be the half court game that he wants it to be, and he can score in the half court. It's true, but LeBron also changed the game with his defense, right? Just right. Like, I, I mean, for sure. Again, I'm not trying to say who's better or anything. I'm just saying there. There's but what I'm saying is in the playoffs, at some point that has to matter. Like Luca is break, Luca is breaking my brain about every assumption I have about the playoffs, right? I'm like, okay, system matters a little bit. Rebound matter. Rebounding matters a little bit. Having good defenders matters a little bit. Apparently, none of that matters, right? <laughs> all you need is, is, is an all-time great player just, just picking on their weak guys and just scoring and just demor- demoralizing the team, right? LeBron did this a few times during his, t- his, his career, right? But the times he won, really, he had a team around him. He had a system around him, right? Sure, but he was still doing that within that yeah. thing. But I mean, he, that, he, that's, to your point, that's why I don't think... It's hard to imagine the Mavericks like winning a championship. Even, you know, they're only like two rounds away from doing that because... It would require so much more than they don't have right now, but they have the one core ingredient, right? They have the guy who generates rim attempts and free throws and three-pointers if you're going to collapse on him. And by the way, if you play defense perfectly, he's going to hit those crazy mid-range things. That's the thing. It's like you need the guy to do that, but he needs to generate the elite offense first. But the crazy thing is he's inefficient at those shots, except weirdly in game sevens of playoffs, right? Like, <laughs> is he inefficient because he takes such bad shots? 
I feel like his three-point shots are terrible. Like, he takes so many step-back threes. I feel like if he just... Like, how many assisted threes does Luca get? But the, one but of the, the lowest rates in the Every NBA. time he takes a step-back three, I think it's going in. Meanwhile, Grant Williams, when he shoots at 41%, I'm like, I think every shot's going to miss. Yeah, right, right. But he's taking spot-up shots. This is a difference, right? Yeah, I, I know, and the guy's I, taking those difficult shots, you know, barring unless you're Steph Curry, who can just take any three, basically. But even then, like, there's a, there's a drop-off. He's taking bad threes. He's not even getting Steph Curry, like, assisted threes. So... I mean, yeah, that's for a function of their team. If I had to put their title shots, I think it would be ten or fifteen percent chance that they're going to win the title, right? Which, 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 and it comes down to basically, can this version of the Mavs be the 2011 Mavs around a central, extraordinary, all-time great player playing at the peak of his powers? And maybe Luca's not at the peak of his powers. That's a separate conversation, right? And just get some hot shooting for two series, you know? Yeah, even that team was just so much more talented than this That's team. That's fair. Their defense was was really good too. Tyson Their defense was really yeah. good, yeah. and like and like right. I could, you could trust Jet Terry to do what he had to do. But Terry would have gotten picked on. Tom Marion was on that squad. You know, Tyson Chandler was a defensive player of the year, caliber level player. Then, as you said, like I look at this team, I'm like, so Jalen Brunson, the second best player on a Western Conference Finals team. I mean, honestly, I honestly have to go back to like 2007. Cavs, like, to think of a worse team that's gone this far. Like, like it's a really bad team, honestly. I, like, like yeah, I get their numbers are fine. They're, they're well coached. I mean, don't I'm forget about Spencer games. Dinwiddie. He's apparently way better than we thought, too, right? Well, he, apparently, he's better than we thought two games ago because he was horrible until game six. And then game six and seven, he he, he transformed into I some mean, other... You, he you told me five months ago that Spencer went at the trade deadline that Spencer Dinwiddie would swing the title. I would have been like, are you kidding me? But he did. He's swinging the title, right? He took out the Suns, who were who were the title favorites. And, and, and someone excising Porzingis, who, you know, I'm never, I, I have a reputation on this pod as being a Porzingis hater. I am a Porzingis hater for because he abandoned my team just like you did. But uh, he, 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 listen, th- this team, we all, there's been long reports about the two of them not getting along, but I think the identity is so clear now, right? Like they do what they do. They don't need this other guy to get his like, you know, arbitrary six post touches that are unnecessary. I still think they could use more. I just, this team is, the, who's the third best player? If you had to pick, is it Dorian Finney-Smith? He's the third best player on the Mavs right now? Yeah, it's either him or Dinwiddie, right? It's, not, it's definitely not Dinwiddie. No. I mean, in this playoffs, yes. No, dude. Dinwiddie's like a guy who like he's he's gonna win you the two game, then lose you like the three games. You know what I mean? At least Finney Smith does his role. But whatever. We're we're quibbling over which role player is the best third option on I mean, a team. They have a, realistically, they have a number one. They have a fourth best player on a title team, and then they have a bunch of fifth best players on a title yeah, team. Yeah, there's no really, two at all. It's literally like the 2007 Cavs team that had like you know Booby Gibson and like Sasha Pavlovic and. The corpse of Ben Wallace the and, and the corpse that, of Big Z. That East was like terrible. This West actually had some good teams, right? I know. I just think Luca's. I just think Luca's that good. That's what I'm saying. Like, and by the way, you're right in a in a sense that on the all time ranking list, defense matters at some point. We, you know, you said the the great players have swung series that way, but it's not really true though. If you actually look at the players on the list, I think we would all agree that somewhere in the top six or seven, you have Maddie Johnson, you have Larry Bird. Not really like standout defensive players. I mean, I think Bird average had average defensive players. 
average. Yeah, you know, that's but that's not all he has to be. Though. Bird was like a good defender, especially early on in his career. Yeah, you know, he had a good sense of steals and time. I'm just saying, like, he's not like a lockdown guy. He's not swinging series because of his defense. He just wasn't competent. I think Magic was a little bit worse than people realized, uh, especially defensively, because he was so big and they still had him sometimes chase on little guards. He had trouble with that a lot. Um, one of the reasons that Byron Scott had a big role in the later titles is because he was covering for Magic. My point is, if he can become competent defensively, and let's be really honest here, between games three and seven, Luca was more than competent. He he was he did his job and then some. Like there was no gaps in that defense. I just, I just again, it doesn't make sense to me. Luca being the fifth worst defender on this team makes sense to me. But I, just like the other players on the team, are, again, like they're they they look like above average defenders. It looks like one great defender yeah. and four three above average defenders and Luca. That's what the team looks like. And sometimes it's, not even that. Like yeah. I don't know if Dinwiddie's above average. I don't think Brunson's above average. I mean Brunson might it's be above maybe. average. Yeah, Brunson's like an above average flopper. That's that's his whole defense. He just falls backward all the time, and and it kind of works. But I mean, I can't hate on flopping being a Celtics fan. Clearly, so. Yeah, I mean that's fair. You have Marcus Smart. Yeah. Maybe him and Chris Paul are up there for the most egregious. I mean, guys Grant Williams definitely flops too. This is. I, yeah. I mean, I mean to be fair, like char- like Giannis literally. He, he charged ten times a game, admittedly. Dude, but. he like he throws an elbow like on every other drive. I mean, <laughs> so I don't know if it's really flopping or exaggerating, but. But the problem is they flop other times, right? Right. Like, I, I no, think yeah. their reputation. Guys, yes, Giannis deserves seven fouls a game easily. Right. Offensive fouls. How Celtics of you to say that? Yeah. I mean, it's it's the truth, right? But I'm also admitting that we flop a lot. So I, Actually, it's the one part of the team I, I don't like. I don't like Jason Tatum's whining. It's why Jason Tatum is not my favorite player. It's why I like Jalen Brown. Brown doesn't whine that much. Horford never whines, you know? Although Horford straight up lies when he, like, hits a ball out of bounds in front of the ref and is like, I didn't touch it. I'm like, what are you talking about? The ball moved direction. <laughs> you can't lie about that. Like... You lose all credibility. But at least he does it subtly. You know, he's not whining openly in front of the refs. Yeah. I mean, I love Al Horford. Yeah. Let me ask you this, Vivek. Let's close out with this question. Pick your conference finals. Let's start with your Celtics versus the Miami Heat. Who's winning in how many games? I mean, Celtics in seven. And honestly, in Miami, they went on the road in game seven, as you predicted. I think they can do it. Yeah. I think Celtics in six. I, I, I think. Miami's a very good defensive team. They're significantly better than Milwaukee, but they're an anemic offensive team. And the only way they get better offensively is to give up that defense. They have to put in guys like Duncan Robinson, like Tyler Hero, and then all of a sudden you lose that edge you have defensively. I think Grant Williams being healthy is going to be much more important in this series. Yes, I agree. Not Grant Williams, I'm sorry. Rob Rob Williams, Time Lord. Yeah, I, I agree. Yes, because I think rim protection is going to matter. I think Bam, I, I still have, uh, I'm sure you still have nightmares a couple years ago when Bam out of bio turned into, you know, I don't know. We are definitely not going to beat the Lakers that year, so it didn't matter anyway. Yeah, the point is, he killed you guys, right? So I think you need something like Rob Williams contributing to stop that. They just go through too many droughts, the Miami Heat, for me to, to believe that they're going to score. They go through droughts against the Sixers, against the Hawks. They're going to go through draws against the best defense that I've seen in a long time. So I mean, I, this is this is why they got Kyle Lowry, right? This is the series that they need someone like Kyle Lowry, and and like they don't have him, right? Yeah, and, if, if they don't have, if he's not back to at least like eighty percent of what he could be, I, I think for sure. So what about the West then? Mavs, Warriors. 
What are oh, your thoughts? That's tough. I, I I can't I can't pick against Luca. It's like it's scaring me, right? He's just too. I gotta pick the Mavs. Wow, I I thought I was doing the hot take when no, I was thinking I, about. I, I just you, know, you the Suns are the best team in the league, and they just eviscerated them, right? And Golden State has not looked that good for a while, right? Yeah. So a couple of things come come to mind for me. I think I think Jason Kidd and and don't forget Sean Sweeney, their defensive assistant, who is one of the best in the league now. I mean, clearly, I think they're they've proven to be very creative defensively. It's gonna be fascinating because everything they used against this team they just faced in Phoenix will not work against Golden State because Golden State is the complete opposite in terms of shot profile. They they're not trying to take mid range jumpers. They're trying to hit threes and get to the rim. They understand the math of the game, right? And if you trap guys like that, they have so much shooting around that they can punish you. So I don't know if trapping will quite work. At the same time, I feel like they're also going to really force Draymond to do something. Like I, I Quietly, Draymond has turned into a, a complete non-entity on offense, and, and no one has seemed to notice this. Like He doesn't even shoot at all. I mean, I, I, he's been like that for years. He's just gotten even worse than he used to be. No, but it's like, he's like really bad at that. I mean, uh, now, to his credit, he's lost some weight, and he's, I think back to his, like, the way we need him to be defensively, right? You know, for the sake of his career. But, and, and they well, do create about, gar- about Draymond guarding Luca straight up? Yeah, you know, I, I heard he's something. He's, like, about- a good profile to, like, you know, he's not going to get bodied in the post for these, like, one-legged step backs, right? It's not a I don't bad think Luca's going to get around him that easily. He's going to anticipate some of Luca's passes. I'm actually really looking, I hope they put him on him rather than as a help defender. Because um, I think that will change the profile quite a bit. Like Maxi Kleba is not going to be posting up people, right? So who cares who guards him? Well, right. So a couple of things. I, that's fascinating to me. I, I, I could see that happening. The thing with Luca is, again, it remains to me seeing if Draymond can stop him when freaking Ka- Kawhi Leonard in his prime couldn't. But, but it's a different profile, right? So Right. I, I get you. I get what you're saying. But the problem with Luca is, okay, so you do that. You put Draymond on him. All right. Jordan Poole, who are you guarding? All right, that guy comes send me a pick. What are we gonna do? So, like, I mean, what are you gonna? You're gonna trap him and then pass it out. I mean, Luca's smart, but he's still young and has a little bit of an ego. He might, he might try to go at Draymond, Draymond a little bit. Oh, I mean, I, I told you that's his, that's his strategy. Go yeah. that. But I feel like he's also ruthless. Like he wants a guy to switch. He'll do it over and over and over again. That, that's like the thing that is so unique about the way that him and LeBron specifically, they'll just do that. Five times, six times, they'll run the same pick again. You see them like pointing out, no, you come set the pick. No, you come set the pick. And then they'll get the guy they want and they'll go at them. And if you don't send help, they'll they'll win more often than they lose. And then if you swarm them, they'll make the pass. So I'm fascinated by that. I'm also fascinated by if they're leaving Draymond open. One of the things that's really creative about Golden State does is Draymond understands, oh, if no one's guarding me and I set a pick for anyone, that guy's wide open. So he won't just stand there. He'll just like, he'll, will move around. They'll do things. They'll do handoffs. They'll do whatever to, to, you know, bend the defense. But it's going to be a very fascinating battle from a, from an X and O standpoint. It's, it's, it's going to come down. You know, I used to watch ESPN and be like all these stupid talking heads being so reductiveness and just like talking about one player versus another. It's like a whole team game. But watching these playoffs, it, it just it really does feel like it it's has super, come down to that, right? It yeah. really comes down to it. Mean, that's basketball, yeah, though, right? That's game what we five, love game about six, game sport. seven, or just the best. Who, which player is playing better, right? It's Tatum and Giannis. It's Luca and Booker, right? It's it's Tatum and Tatum and Durant. It's just like how it's how it comes down to it. So yeah. I think the series is just going to be: Does Steph still have it in him to be a better player than Luca? 
for a few games in that series. And Steph is amazing. He might. And the thing is, he doesn't even have to be better than Luka. He just has to be... The same, right. Or even just close. And then they have a better team. And if, like, if Poole gets 25, you know, and Clay gets 20, that then oh, Steph needs to get 25 himself, and they'll, they'll win that game most likely. Like, that. that's the thing. That's the advantage he has. I mean, there's several Warriors I've picked before basically anyone on the map. I guess I, I got to give Brunson some credit. But after Brunson, it really, it really drops off. As you said, Brunson's like a fourth best player. And then after that, I don't know, fifth or sixth best player on a, on a normal championship contender. It's in, it's honestly an interesting legacy series for Steph, right? Because he has not had too many signature playoff series where he's outplayed the other team's player. The Warriors have won, but he himself is not. I know this is, this is a, again, a talking head thing that people say about Steph and is not 100% true. But it's there's true some enough, truth. Though. Yeah, it's, there's, it's some, true enough. there's some truth to it. So, I mean, if Steph steps up to the plate, really is approximates what Luka, Luka brings. I think that's a huge credit to Steph's legacy. Not that he needs it, but it would be. On top of that, his playoff runs, even the ones he's played really well and have oft come against injured teams. In fact, even in this playoffs, they face, once again, the, the, the luck of the Warriors sometimes is unbelievable. They face a very banged up team in each of the first two rounds. In the Nuggets and in the Grizzlies, who literally didn't have their best player for the back half of that series. And now they're facing a team that I, mean, I guess they don't have Tim Harvey Jr., but it's a relatively healthy team. So they're gonna they're gonna need Steph to be Steph. Steph has not been Steph since the first two months of this season. He looked like, like the MVP early front runner, and I have not seen that guy since. I don't really know what's happened. He's still Steph, and that he gets gravity, but he's not been converting the way he can. This is a series that you're right; like he could take some of these guys. Can they ice them, or will they go away from their system a little bit? Will they will they switch Hunt a little bit more? We haven't seen them do that often, but sometimes they do, and 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 it, and it works. You know, like they, they, I think Jordan Poole and Steph did that a little bit more in the back half of the Grizzlies series. Will they try that against the Mavs? And and we'll see. Now, I think the thesis that you presented is the idea that the Mavs, on paper, don't look like they should be this good defensively. Well, no team stretches that a defense out and really asks questions more than the Golden State Warriors. So we'll we'll see. By the way, I, my prediction is Mavs. In seven, and I'm 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 doing it with my heart <laughs> more than my head, but I do believe in Luca. I I still believe it's that much of a, a matchup. Nightmare. I'm gonna say Babs in seven, but I'm doing it based on my gut, not my stomach, not 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 my head or my heart. Your gut, not your stomach. <laughs> my, my gut slash my stomach, not my not oh, my see. head or my heart. You know. Nice. All right, man. Well, good luck to your team. I know you're going to the game tomorrow. We're recording this on a Monday. You'll be at Game One in Miami. Oh man, I'm gonna be decked out full on in, in in Celtics gear. The only things I don't have anymore is I had some Kyrie shoes that I burned, so <laughs> I don't have any green shoes anymore. But I got green glasses, I got jerseys, I got the whole deal. Nice. Well, we'll be looking forward to hearing from you again soon, my man Vivek. Best of luck to you. Thanks for coming on the pod. Thanks for having me, AC. And for all of you guys out there, thanks for tuning in for another episode of Brown Men Won't Jump. Be sure to follow us on social media at Brown Men Won't Jump on Instagram and on Facebook. And you can reach out to us, write to us. Do you think Vivek was too generous with his assessment of Jason Tatum? Write to us at brownmenwontjump at gmail.com. If you think that I was crazy in my heart purpley about Luka Doncic, tell me that I'm wrong. We want to hear from you. Until then, though, guys, we'll catch you on the other side. Hope you have a good week enjoying this round of conference finals.
Peace out, guys. You gotta know when to hold them, know when to fold them.